This Institute of Ideas podcast lecture on J.S. Mills on Liberty was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2015 at the Barbican London as part of the Academy in One Day Strand. Thanks very much for the invitation and for the very kind and exaggerated uh, introduction, especially the surname. Um, um, the text, I mean, Mill is very misunderstood. That's what happens to very complex people uh, who, have, who are very nuanced and not crude. Uh, the text itself on liberty is very misunderstood and has been taken to be all sorts of things it is not. Um, but in 30 minutes, there is so much I can do. So my hope is that you will raise issues, provoke me, uh, challenge me, so that I can address some of the misunderstandings uh, or rectify my own misunderstandings, obviously. So yesterday, Nadia advised me not to talk about Mill's context, Mill's thought in general, Mill's life, and how On Liberty fits into it as much as I was planning to, but to focus on the text. But I hope that a few words can be said in the end about how it fits to, uh, into Mill's overall thought, because I have to remind you, this is not his most important text, although, uh, as he predicted, it's the one that would uh, last longer and be remembered more and discussed more. Uh, it's a pièce d'occasion. It was written for its own time and uh, for Victorian Britain for a particular reason and for particular contextual reasons. The fact that it became a classic is interesting. As I said, he predicted it, but it was not his main, uh, uh, what he thought would be his claim to posterity's attention. His most serious works, his most important works were a system of logic and principles of political economy, which he, where his whole philosophy is uh, put together. Of course, because they are very long and very difficult, uh, fewer people read them than read On Liberty. But it does mean that On Liberty is an easy text. I know I'm wasting my minutes by introducing it, but it's crucial. I have read it literally dozens of times. I teach it every year to more than one different class. Every time I, I discover new things I had not noticed, which I find astonishingly important. So that's what I mean. Um, the, the book begins with an introductory chapter where Mill explains what he's going to do. He says this is not about the... Um, well-known discussion about freedom of the will versus determinism. I'm going to talk about social liberty, and uh, I have a very particular concern here, a very particular focus, not a general philosophical discussion about liberty overall uh, in, in, in terms of logic and philosophy and so on. Uh, and he says there is a particular problem which arises in recent decades. For centuries, the the friends of liberty, the patriots, the radicals, the liberals, he calls them various things. The oppositional forces of people who uh, took the side of the people, the popular party, as he calls them sometimes, had a very simple problem. Power was in the hands of one or a few, and they were the enemy. They were the, the, the power against which the people had to defend themselves. So the battle lines were clearer. Um, he alludes to Hobbes, uh, to Hobbes' argument clearly when he, he, he uses even the words. He says at some point people realize that in order not to kill each other, they have to appoint a chief vulture that will have so much power that he can prevent them from devouring each other. This is the argument of Hobbes' uh, 
Leviathan and on the citizen, that people appointed a leader and had to give him um, or them um, absolute and undivided power and so much as they need to prevent us from being dangerous to each other. However, says Mill, they realized very quickly, of course, that although this was inevitable and necessary, it led to a very serious problem, which is that chief vulture could do all sorts of things to them that they didn't like. So the struggle became how do we uh, set limits to what the government whoever they are, a monarch or an aristocracy can do. Given that with the exception of very few moments in history like ancient Athens and some republics in Italy and so on, the vast majority of regimes in history were uh, of that type. The, the problem was always how to reduce their, what they can do to us through securities or rights or guarantees against what they, you know, the Magna Carta and things like that. Or the other device was um, checks and balances, separation of powers, and so on, so that you try to make sure uh, too much power is not concentrated in the hands of one person or one assembly. However, a new situation has arisen, says Mill, in the last few decades. Um, it dawned to people at some point, he obviously condenses very sweepingly a very long um, story, um, uh, people at some point decided it's not necessary for our protection to have leaders who are exercising power over us, we can um, have that power ourselves, have the sovereignty ourselves, and appoint representatives um, appointed and dismissible by ourselves who can govern us. And we all know what he meant. And, uh, of course, that sounded a great idea. So when, that, when they started... Uh, fighting for that kind of regime and in installing it, people started thinking, surely we don't need to take precautions against ourselves. The people cannot tyrannize the people. So, in so many words, you will find these words in Rousseau, for example. So, there is no need to divide uh, uh, the, the power of the government or to set limits to what it can do. Let them do uh, anything because it's us. And here, Mill says, begins the problem and the misunderstanding of our time, of modern times. He says, forget about the French Revolution, let's say it was an aberration when a few people took uh, dictatorial powers in the name of the people. It's not the French Revolution that is the example of the problem as much, so much as uh, the American Republic. He doesn't name it, but it's obvious what he means. Um, as a democratic republic was installed in the world and existed in a very large part of the world, um, in a large country, people realized that the people can tyrannize the people, alas, because when we say the people, it's always, of course, at best, a majority of the people, or usually, what happens in practice, a minority who pass as the majority because of electoral systems or because they are the most vociferous or the most, uh, um, um, yeah, they feel strongly. So a number of the people, who might be the majority, very often even are not, are the government, elect the government. And if you go on with the principle they can do whatever they like because it's us, you are in deep trouble because the government, even if it's appointed by a majority, can do horrible things to individuals and minorities. So people now realize, in the last few decades have realized, that we have to also limit the powers of that government even though it's elected by the people. And it's much worse, the argument goes. Um, when the, the power was won, or in minority, there, was, there were limits to what they could do to you because you could always hide in some cafe or in some house and swear at them and um, uh, sing against them and, and, and say what you really feel. When the tyranny is the tyranny of the majority, 
when a majority uh, feeling uh, has spread around and, and, and imposes its, its, uh, its taste, then uh, you have no recourse. The individual starts feeling um, powerless and even internalizes the feelings of the majority. The only authority is the authority of numbers. Uh, these are things that, as Nadia said, were analyzed by Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America, 1835, second volume, 1840. Mill had reviewed it positively. He knew people had read it. it you know, Tocqueville was uh, quoted in Parliament immediately. The term tyranny of the majority caught on. So he knew that his audience knew what he was talking about. He didn't have to elaborate in that introductory chapter. So therefore, the need to defend individuals against the encroachments of the government is uh, increased, not decreased, by the fact that governments are now popular. But that's not the main problem, Mill insists. Uh, in this country, because of the peculiarities of our history and our prejudices as a result of that, we distrust the government. I may remind you that there was a prime minister called Gordon Brown who tried to introduce identity cards, and you know what happened. Uh, civil disobedience was threatened. The, the plan was taken away, uh, was uh, withdrawn. For continentals like me, who always had an identity card, um, it, it sounded bizarre. I understand it because I understand what Mill is talking about. I understand British history and how the British feel about their history. But frankly, Google knows everything you, do, you know, everything you do, everything you download, everything you watch. Um, it gives it to, to companies. These companies bombard you with uh, images and, and advertisements, and you're worried about whether the state has um, your data somewhere in identity cards or not. That is what he meant. He meant the British have a prejudice against the government. They mistrust the government. This is part of our political culture or national character or whatever. Therefore, I'm not worried about the government so much. I'm worried about society. I'm worried about public opinion. I'm worried about uh, a majority that wants to impose its, uh, its mild on everybody. That's the big danger in this country and in general in the future. Of course, as the tendency is that governments will become more and more popular and uh, the government itself will do whatever it takes to please the majority, the problem would also be legal infringements on our rights. But I need to stress, he was not talking about the law. Most of the time he was talking about uh, the, the, the moral sanction of a public opinion that is intolerant or, and wants to um, impose its, its, um, its mild on everybody. So enough about the introductory chapter. He ends up with what he calls a very simple principle, which we all know, having read it, is not that simple, um, that the only... Um, um, the only justification for society, I stress society, either through the law or through public opinion, to interfere with the freedom of action of any of its members is to prevent harm to others. The individual's own good is not sufficient justification. You can remonstrate with them, try to convince them, tell them, protest with them, try to persuade them. You can even uh, be upset with them and tell them, but you don't force them to stop that f f uh, way of living or that... Um, the, what the, whatever it is that they do that you don't like, actively, uh, because uh, as long as it only harms themselves. You just tell them all the time. You bang on about it. You intrude on them, he says somewhere. But you don't stop them from doing it. You stop them when it interferes with other people's interests um, and, and harms them. Now, it all sounds very good. I predict immediately the objection. It's not so simple. He does himself, as you will have seen. Uh, tries to address all sorts of um, objections. It is not so simple. Of course, um, I, am, I am concerned about my friends, I'm concerned about my family, 
uh, society is concerned with all its members and so on. He says, of course, of course, we, we, we need to find all a threshold, though, and it is tangible interest. When you harm people's interests, not when people, you don't like the way they dress or you don't like their sexual habits or you don't like the religion they profess and you are worried about the loss of their soul and you want to save their soul because otherwise your God will be upset with you. That's not a good justification. Only when people harm other people's tangible interests is society uh, not only allowed but obliged to intervene. And he stresses, both in the introductory chapter and throughout especially in the last chapter, that the problem is, uh, goes both ways. Now, because we don't have an established principle, uh, society as often interferes wrongly when it shouldn't interfere, but also re as many times refrains from interfering with where it ought to interfere to protect individuals uh, who are threatened. And so the, the so-called principle of liberty is completely misapplied uh, at the moment, and that's why he thinks we need to establish a principle. So, the second extremely eloquent, often quoted chapter on, the, on freedom of speech speaks for itself. It's the longest. It's very passionate. But if you haven't read it, please read it. You will see what I mean if you haven't read it. It is so eloquent that there is very little I can say, except that it makes an extremely powerful case for uh, freedom of speech, absolute freedom of speech, with one exception which he introduces in the next chapter, in the third, uh, when it leads to, um, to uh, harming people physically, harming people uh, actively. And, and he says it's all a matter of context. It, it, there is a distinction. If you write in the newspapers or say on TV or whatever in our days, uh, the corn, you know, the corn, um, corn laws were uh, abolished only a couple of decades earlier in uh, the 1840s. The book was written in 57, 11 years later, and published in uh, 59. So Mill says, if somebody goes, if somebody writes in the newspapers, corn dealers are starvers of the poor, or property is theft, that's fine. You can say whatever you like, and people can challenge you uh, in terms of speech and, and ideas. But if you go in, in, in front of the house of a corn dealer, where there is a starving mob, who are really starving, and you say, corn dealers are starvers of the poor. It is incitement, incitement to lynching him, basically. So, you know, it's an example. We can extrapolate all sorts of examples and see where the, where the, the limit is. I'm not saying it's easy, but he tells you there is a principle you can establish again. Um, other than that, freedom of speech has to be absolute. And he gives three powerful reasons why. Uh, one is the... Um, the idea or doctrine you are trying to abolish might be true. And the majority opinion or the government opinion or our opinion at the moment uh, might be wrong. Do I need to remind you examples of that? He implies there was a man called Jesus Christ. Remember what happened to him by well-meaning people? Uh, there was a man called Socrates. Remember what happened to him by a democratic um, jury of 500 Athenian citizens? And now we think these men were the... The, the best men that ever lived. Um, and, and we all uh, praise what they preached and so on. Uh, should they have been silenced? No. So, first of all, we may be silencing uh, true opinions and may be imposing uh, false opinions. It has happened throughout history. Every generation comes and thinks how stupid the previous generation was to have done this and that. What makes us think that we are much wiser and what we now think is the truth? Um, it is an assumption of infallibility to abolish discussion of any topic. Any topic should be discussed 
because otherwise you're assuming that you are infallible. And the only, uh, we have no guarantee that anything is true, except in geometry and mathematics, in, in moral and political matters, which are very complex and contested, and will always have to be contested, middle hope. Uh, the only uh, guarantee that you have any chance of approximating truth is to have a standing invitation for its uh, challenging, for, for it being challenged. So only through free speech and allowing others to um, attack your opinion do you have any chance of uh, certainty that your opinion might be, might be correct, might be true or approximate truth. Second, no less important, he stresses, the reason why freedom of speech is so necessary is the current opinion might be correct and the challenging opinion, the minority or uh, you know, fringe opinion might be wrong. But um, by abolishing debate, we who have the right opinion forget why we have the right opinion. It becomes a formula. We stop believing in it. We stop feeling passionate about it. And it loses the power that it had on our minds. And again, much can, can be said about that, but you can all guess uh, examples of where that might happen when something becomes a kind of taboo and we shouldn't discuss it anymore. So what we, are, what we believe has to be challenged, not least, in order for us to believe it more strongly or correctly, or to remember the reasons and the grounds on which we believe it, and so on. Thirdly, there is a greater category where the truth is somewhere in between. The, 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 you know, it may be 50%, it might be 30, 70, that's not the point. Uh, Mill believed strongly, as many Victorians did, in the noisy, uh, uh, the noisy clamor of half-truths. Most opinions people assert very strongly are half-truths. And the more an opinion is... Um, Oppressed, the more it will go to extremes to stress the other, the other side of the story and so on. Truth is approximated through that dialogue and that debate. So we need the other side to be stressed by those who believe in it. I, um, so again, much can be said about this, but this is a major part of the argument that um, we may have a very strong part of the truth, but we may not have thought of all the objections, the only way is to... And if we didn't have people who attack our opinions, we should invent them. We should have artificial opposition, says Mill. Even as intolerant an institution as the Catholic Church, says he, has, um, has the institution of, a, of the devil's advocate. When somebody is about to be canonized, who may say why the devil might object, and so on. So you need freedom of speech. I stop there. It's a very, very eloquent chapter. Uh, next chapter, shorter, of individuality as one of the elements of well-being. Um, am I right in thinking I have another 15 or is it 10? No, 15. 15. Thank you. So, um, there, again, very eloquently, we have a defense of the all importance, of the paramount importance of individuality and diversity. He quotes uh, von Humboldt, the German romantic, uh, who is also quoted in the epigraph of the book, about the importance of the full and uh, diversity and full development of the human capabilities for which you need individuality and difference and uh, diverse, uh, situa diverse um, experiments of living and so on. He's famous for that. He makes many arguments um, in support of that. The, there is an aesthetic part involved there. You know, uh, people become beautiful objects, objects of contemplation when they have built their own character themselves and they have become what they are through their own choices and efforts. He stresses that you have to make your choices and pay the, pay the price, and that's part of what builds your character and makes you an interesting and mature human being. 
Um, so uh, you will never do that if do-gooders decide your um, decide your path of life for you. He makes a, a very strong argument about the the kind of um, uh, capabilities and the kind of qualities that you develop in the process of making a choice and then um, about, uh, facing the consequences of your choice, judgment, discernment. Um, um, uh, once you make a decision, how you stick to it through uh, self-discipline and all these things. If you if 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 you leave your the person who leaves his or her um, part of the world to make their choice for them through custom or majority opinion uh, need no other quality need, need no other capacity than that of the ape-like one of imitation, says Mill. If we want people like that, we can we can have societies where we follow customs. If we want people who are interesting, dynamic, uh, creative, um, can 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 uh, be beautiful objects of contemplation for others, good examples for others, and so on, and can produce new things, new ideas, um, uh, different um, situations, we we might as well let them choose for themselves. Uh, I try to hurry up because there are some general things I want to say but obviously happy to discuss a bit more on this. But he stresses in that chapter, um, it's not only the understanding and the mental uh, capacities that um, is part of the argument, uh, it's also the will. All these do-gooders want people who have no character. The, the ideal of character they promote, this is clearly, it's not veiled. Many, very, very often people say, um, and some people that are in your bibliography, I'm afraid, which I didn't choose, it was there before I was asked to... Um, I hope you didn't read it. I hope you read just Mill. Uh, but anyway, if you read it, I'm happy to uh, engage with it. All I mean is I you could start from other more, more sympathetic readings and then read those. But um, um, some of the critics say it's, it's, it's an attack on Christianity and Mill is uh, disingenuous. Well, he's not hiding it. It's obviously an attack on Christian do-gooders. He says in so many words, and... Uh, Due respect to Christians, you don't know my own beliefs. I'm not. I'm talking about what the book does, and you don't know Mill's beliefs, perhaps, which were very complex uh, and changed over time to an extent. But he says, you, we, you can accept that the, you can you can promote a morality that is uh, more selfless than the morality of um, the average Christian in this country, which is that uh, you'll be saved if you do this and that, and therefore it, it gives you a selfish motive to be good and to do good whereas Mill wants to promote altruism for its own sake, uh, um, and he wants you to do things for other people uh, for, in order to develop your social um, and sympathetic feelings, which then make you happier. It's a long story about his moral uh, thought, which we have no time to go to, but happy to discuss later. So it's also strong, strong wills. Energetic people will disappear if we let ma majorities and do-gooders um, cramp them. So he, he famously says you cannot... Um, mount the, the waters of Niagara into a Dutch canal. So he, there is an almost Nietzschean, what Nietzsche would later be famous for, an almost Nietzschean assertion of what he says, self, we need pagan self-assertion even more than Christian self-denial. The, the self-denial promoted by Christianity is not a good thing. It will create meek and uh, passive individuals. We don't want that. Um, so quite a few strong statements that people might or might not expect from Mill. I hasten to go then to the last two chapters where he tries to establish um, some of the limits, some of the concrete principles, and then some concrete examples. And he stresses, of course, there is no end to examples. There will arise situations which he cannot predict, and we all know them now. 
how many he could not have predicted. And in his own times, there is so much you can do in a pamphlet, because this was a short pamphlet written very hastily. Uh, by the way, he never changed anything in the book except some typos, because he insisted this was written together with my wife. His wife died on the way to Avignon in uh, November '58. So he had the book published a couple of months later, beginning of, 2000, uh, of 1859, without any corrections, and he insisted never to touch it, although he corrected everything else he wrote many, many times when it was republished. But this is a joint production um, dedicated to her memory, so he wouldn't touch it. Um, so, um, and that's a peculiarity of the text. So, um, in an attempt to establish some principles, I told you he insisted that as often as... Um, interfering for the wrong reasons and in the wrong cases, we often, society often interferes for the, uh, doesn't interfere when it ought to interfere. So something he stresses is let's talk about harm to others and what I mean by that. Well, he says, um, you may have some habits that themselves may be regrettable, but society has no business stopping you from gambling or wasting your money in uh, speculation or whatever else it is, being profligate, if you harm only yourself. But if through these things you don't um, um, feed your children and you don't provide for their education, society has some business to interfere. Not only that, he says in, in Chapter 4, there are cases where what you do and spend your money on uh, disproportionately are laudable things, good things. I wrote on the margins of my copy, e.g., um, uh, second-hand bookshop addiction, which is my, <laughs> my, um, one of my many vices. If I overdo it and don't provide for my child, society has to force me to do so uh, by fines, by imprisonment, by, depending on the offense. Same thing with education. Later, he talks about, in the last chapter, he talks about education. He stresses um, that it's one of the cases where society doesn't interfere and it should interfere. The state should not provide education exclusively uh, only as one of the providers, he says, uh, as an example, as a competitor that might give an example of quality to others, but there should be diversity of provision in order for the state not to brainwash people into one direction and create a people who think alike. But that is another discussion from the discussion, should there be universal education obligatorily? Yes. The state should force everybody to send their children to school up to a level. And uh, for those who cannot afford it, the state should pay for it. But if parents don't send their children to school, then they are liable to interference. <coughs> it's not infringement of liberty. It is forcing them to do their duty to the people that depend on them. So it's protection of the child. And therefore, that's uh, one of the cases where society doesn't interfere, and that's wrong. Um, he has other cases which are even more controversial, much more controversial. Um, uh, people consider it a right to give birth. But he says it's the most, the most um, um, difficult, the most important thing you will ever do, pro bringing new people in the world. So it's not, it's not your right to produce people if you don't then uh, prov provide for them, if you neglect them and you create unhappy criminals. You destroy them, you destroy those that come anywhere near them. So the state has business forcing you to take care of your children and so on. Uh, in various ways. So again, we can discuss the deep details and all sorts of articles and theses and books can be written and they are being written, but he wants to establish a principle where people should misunderstand what liberty means. So in the last five minutes, I would, I would like to, I mean, there are many, many more arguments in the book that I have no time to discuss. I would like to put this into context. Why on earth does he try to do this? Is he 
as many people thought at the time and since, uh, giving us a gospel of doing as one likes, as Matthew Arnold thought he was doing, for example. Only after Mill died and he read Mill's autobiography did Matthew Arnold realize he was attacking the wrong enemy and that Matt, Mill was on his side, on the side of culture. But it was seen by many people uh, and has been since as a gospel of doing as you like, a kind of leave me alone to do my own thing. It's not. It's, much, it's, it's, it's a much more complex thing. It's let's, let's establish a principle. And the principle is society are greater gainers by allowing, by tolerating each other to do whatever they like uh, if it harms only themselves than by interfering with it. It's a, it's a matter of consequences. Many of the things people will do to themselves are horrible to themselves, and it's, it's a shame. Many of them may upset other people, and that's a bit of a shame, although not a good reason to interfere. The, the alternative is horrifying, though. The alternative is a society where a majority, with the best intentions sometimes, or not, some other times, but let's assume with the best intentions, tell, tells people how to be, what to think, uh, what to eat, and the rest of it. Um, and, of course, that... Once diversity and the taste for diversity and the taste for difference disappears, then people will forget even that it ever was there. And they will not have any desire to be different. They will not have any desire to make choices and be themselves and have a character and so on. So that's the danger. That's what he wants to fight against. Does that mean that Mill thinks anything goes? Far from that. Every time I teach this course, especially to postgraduates, this book, I start by giving them a text that Mill wrote in 1838 in his essay on Bentham. Attacking Bentham for insisting that don't mention the word taste to me. People's tastes are not my business. People should have any taste they want. And Mill attacks him for half a page for this extraordinarily stupid remark, as if people's tastes don't show so many things about them in terms of whether they are crude or vulgar or this or that or noble and so on. So I always ask my students, is this compatible with the liberty on liberty? Is he inconsistent or mad or did he change his mind between 38 and 59? Um, my answer is, no, he didn't change his mind, and it's absolutely compatible. It's a long story, and I have only two minutes for it. But there is a long tradition in the, in the history of moral thought called the art of life tradition. It starts with Socrates and followers of Socrates, Stoics, and all sorts of people in earlier antiquity, and so on. And it, Mill is, was, of course, as you may know, spoon-fed Plato and Socrates from the age of three by his father. He knew it very well. The art of life distinguishes life in three branches. Morality, which is what we owe to other people, my dealings with other people. Aesthetics, which has to do with beauty. So the, 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 um, the binaries are beauty, be beautiful or ugly, uh, or noble or uh, ignoble, and so on in, in, the, in aesthetics. And then prudence, which is uh, what affects only myself. Is it in my interest to do this? Does it harm me? Does it harm my long-term plans? And so on. So here Mill tries to say what... A, let's remember, he doesn't say it in so many words, but if you read his other works, not least the logic, where it's very clear, uh, he's trying to establish the cases where morality applies and leave the rest to other branches of the art of life. Uh, morality applies to our dealings with other people and whether we harm them or not and what the limits are there. It does mean he, has, he doesn't have extremely strong views as to you have to take care of yourself and your, to achieve your goals and so on, which is the prudential part uh, of, uh, of the art of life, and that he doesn't have no less strong views on aesthetics. 
and, and how life has to be beautiful and how we have to cultivate ourselves. And much of that is in chapter three here of individuality as one of the elements of, of, of well-being. Um, so all these things are terribly important, but we shouldn't confuse them. So if I don't like the way you dress or the way uh, the poetry or the music you hear and so on, uh, it, we disagree on aesthetics and I have every right and duty to try to uh, improve you uh, through conversation, but I have no business forcing you I, have to, I can force you only if it's a matter of morality. You affect other people's interests or prevent them from flourishing in the ways uh, everybody should be allowed to flourish. Because in the long term, that's what promotes a society of beautiful human beings, a civilized society, and a society of, of people who have the chance to become noble characters, which is the aim of Mill's philosophy overall. Thanks. Thank you. I guess